Hello everyone, I'm Frederick Gieschen, and today I'm talking to Mark Rubenstein, who is the author of The Net Interest, which is a substack all about financials and fintech, which I really enjoy. He, uh, Mark's background is as a sales side analyst and partner at a hedge fund covering financials. He's a really insightful writer and former investor, and I'm really grateful to have had this chance uh, to dig into everything financials, banks, fintech, the dot-com bust frameworks that work or may no longer work in financials, the credit cycle, inflation, talked about private equity. Highly recommend you check out his Substack, and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Per the usual, none of this is investment advice. Always do your own research um, or consult your own advisors. And with that, let's get started. That is that is what I'm counting yep. on. I'm counting on being anti-fragile. Precisely. Right? You can just pivot to distressed and, and other topics like In fact, that. your content, oh. I would think, has never been more useful, actually, because very few investors have lived through this kind of environment, but many investors historically have. And if we can learn their lessons as you tell them, then that's a hugely valuable thing. I'm going to use that right now as, as an endorsement. My content has never been more useful. If that's not a reason to, I, to I, sign I up, then... I, I think, I think that, is, that is right. I, I appreciate that. You know, write, up, kind of you write up this week on Druckenmiller. You know, what he was saying was gold. And few people know his history as you do, having studied it in a lot of detail. Thank you. I, I, I do appreciate that. And and I do want to thank you for taking the time and, and, and coming on. I'm a, I'm a big fan of your Substack. I think I, I learned a, a ton from it. And I want to start off with a piece that you wrote recently um, about the, the dot-com bubble bust your experience with it and you um you went into a few areas of sort of fintech and financials compared and contrasted that time period to today so maybe let's start off that what's what was your experience during the dot-com bust and how do you think about it in 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 retrospect and in in your corner of the world so at the time i was a sell-side research analyst i had moved in march of 2000 from a smaller firm to Credit Suisse, which was a large research-oriented firm that was particularly prominent in tech at the time and was doing doing very well. Um, my sector was the banking sector, so it wasn't quite at the epicenter of the boom and subsequent bust. But I guess I did have a ringside seat because then, as now, there was a lot of fintech activity. People didn't call it fintech at the time, um, but we were seeing the IPO, the creation and the subsequent IPOs of e-brokers, they were called, like E-Trade and Meritrade. Um, there was mm -hmm. a plethora of smaller ones. Commerzbank in Germany spun off an e-broker called Comdirect at one point, end of 99, 2000, the implied valuation of Comdirect was as high, maybe even higher, than the valuation of the Comet Bank commercial banking operations. Um, so there was activity on the uh, brokerage side, which again reflects a common theme, retail engagement in the markets. Very, very high. Right, right. And at the time, I think I referenced this in one of my pieces, being a stock analyst then was like being a VC today. It was kind of the coolest job you could have. 
it was I was in high demand among friends and acquaintances wanting to know what I was thinking saying seeing and the remuneration and the demand for stock analysts was extremely high stock analysts were bid away from firms towards other firms um, you don't quite see that kind of revolving door aspect within the VC market today but certainly the analogy that stock analyst being a stock analyst was the profession that people aspired to and it was the coolest profession at the time very reminiscent of what's going on in VC today yes I'm I, I was kind of thinking I was trying to figure out right how much to what extent history was was sort of repeating itself I think you made some some good comments there on on um, maybe taking even a step back when I think about financials it's it seems to me it's one of those sectors where it's easy for generalists um, to get themselves into trouble because it can be hard to discern what is really innovation and what's really a, a trend and a change in a, in a new business model or what's just the cycle and certain business models seem to come in and out of fashion whether that's lending or others so I'm, so I'm curious how you how you think about this what, what kind of is our financials is is this an area where history as a as a guide is particularly useful or is that treacherous now with the internet how do you think and, and where do people get themselves into trouble right sort of because I like to study history, but I'm sort of very wary of it's easy to just draw, a, you know, some kind of conclusion that, that will lead you the wrong way. And you, you run off in it with an analogy and, and it's um, I'm increasingly cautious with what we can actually learn from, from history. So how, how do you think about that? I think, I think broadly markets, and it's a point that's been made better by others, but markets at any point in time have distinctive characteristics but ultimately markets are a collection of people coming together to transact and human psychology and human behavior hasn't changed over the ages. And therefore, notwithstanding those distinct characteristics, the fundamental essence of a market doesn't change through history. And people have talked about in the context of crypto, they've talked about tulips, they've talked about South Sea, these cycles are a feature of history. Financial services companies sit at the heart of that. Financial services companies are the vehicle that allow markets, they're the infrastructure underpinning markets. Right. You can think of you can think of one way of thinking about a financial company is kind of like a platform that is an intermediary like other platforms and it intermediates supply and demand um but because and i delve more into that in a second but because incentives are, are such that the financial services company makes more money through volume be that credit volume be that trading volume mm -hmm. they are incentivized to create additional supply if there isn't enough or demand if there isn't enough so great example is the financial crisis the there was there was clearly latent demand for how the clearly there was demand for housing and demand for a way to finance that housing financial institutions recognized that and they just went too far 
I'm, just, I'm not going to percolate the entire financial crisis down to one cause, one reason. Another feature of these boom-bust mechanics is that there are many reasons, and often it's the confluence of those reasons, the interconnection of those reasons that leads to kind of the crisis point. But just one reason to pick, just one, one element of the financial crisis to pick out is that banks recognised that they could make money financing uh, loans and therefore they were incentivized to finance more loans. And when the, and, and, re, and recognising that demand hurdle went down in terms of quality, right. they created more and more volume. Um, and they created machines to generate that volume. Many of the financial companies, they vertically integrated right down into origination. Morgan Stanley, Deutsche Bank, they acquired mortgage businesses, which they saw not in the traditional sense of being in the retail banking business, but in the sense that this was a machine to generate volume that they could pass through their other elements of their business and, and create and generate profit. So, so financial services companies, they, they're intermediaries, they sit at the heart of markets, they counterbalance they, between su supply and demand, but frequently because of their incentive structure, they will over-generate supply or over-generate demand. Do, do you think, so I'm, I'm kind of going in, in a few different directions, I, I think it's a really interesting idea. So, so one thought I had was, I think after the financial crisis, um, clearly housing was tainted, but there were other assets that had held up pretty well, um, you know, financing for cars, for example, or other things. Do, do you think it's sort of, is it too simple to then take the next step and say like, oh, okay, in the next credit cycle, assets that performed well in the previous cycle, right, that same incentive structure happens. And so probably there's an, people are incentivized to create you know, quote unquote, create an oversupply of this of this new asset. And I think, um, and like, is it, can you use this 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 framework in that way and sort of say like, okay, this cycle, I, I wanna be particularly cautious around, I don't know, other types of loans, whether that's um, in, in housing might be might be more secure. And I'm realizing last week, um, uh, Druckenmiller spoke at the, um, at the IRS own conference, and he made this one comment where he said, well, typically after financial crisis for several decades, there isn't another one because people have learned their lesson and the regulators cracked down. But he also said, well, he wasn't so sure whether he's still buying into that right now and whether he's buying into the narrative of the, the strong bank uh, bank balance sheets. How, how do you think about this whole kind of, I guess, the, the, the banking sector and the strength and, and this um, incentive to create an oversupply of, of, of investment. I think that's a really good heuristic. I think that regulators and all market participants have a tendency, regulators and policymakers more so, because they respond to public angst, they have a tendency to fight the last battle. And as a result of that, they'll create a framework which will make the last battle less likely. But such as the nature of markets, problems will emerge el elsewhere. And actually looking at financials, you can see that. So the, we started off talking about 2000. Subsequent to two, 2001, 2002, we saw a corporate credit downturn. 
Mm. Um, triggered by fallen angels in credit markets and a number of banks, JP Morgan actually being one, suffered materially from corporate credit losses. The banks that suffered the most in that cycle, kind of rough rule of thumb, suffered the least in the financial crisis five, six, seven, eight years later. JP Morgan outperformed in that crisis. UBS, which had come through the dot-com bubble quite well relative to, let's say, Credit Suisse, um, underperformed then in the global financial crisis 2007-2008. The Scandinavian banks, rolling it yeah. forward, outperformed in the financial crisis, but then ran into problems, not kind of when I think about banking, I think about three different types of risk, credit risk, market risk, and then operational risk. Operational risk is relatively new. It's kind of manifested more, I mean, it's, it's not new fundamentally, but the penalties are harsher than they used to be. If a bank slips up, like um, Wells Fargo in 2016, mm. mis-selling, the, 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 the regulatory response can be absolutely punishing, and the stockholder response can be very punishing as well. So that's a risk, operational risk. Um, the Nordic banks, Scandinavian banks, outperformed in the global financial crisis, but then ran into a maelstrom of operating risk subsequent to that linked to, uh, linked to money laundering. Uh, uh, and, they, and, they, and they underperformed on that dimension in the 10 years subsequent to the financial crisis. Interesting. Um, and, well, what do you mean by market risk? Market risk is linked to linked to markets. Market risk might be being long. So, it, 1994, you know, I think we've established that there are some phenomenal precedents in history. And one precedent for what's going on in markets right now, i.e., really quite sharp hikes in interest rates mm -hmm. um, was 1994 when in February 1994 Alan Greenspan hiked rates it was a complete surprise to the markets mm -hmm. um, and brokers dealers and banks weren't able to position for it at the time they had more inventory on their balance sheets than they do now um, and when the price of that inventory collapsed because interest rates went up, they obviously suffered quite significant losses. So they were exposed to market risk in 1994. Salomon had a shocking year in 1994. Globally, there was one and a half trillion dollars of losses across bond portfolios in 1994. Hmm. Yeah, I remember there was... Um I think a number of hedge funds that had sort of um, done um, either carry trades or were just long uh, long duration assets and that uh, I think Steinhardt even shut down after that where where was it I think they called it the, the bond market massacre they called it right? the bond like market it massacre like, it was PIMCO's yeah. worst ever year having been yeah. founded in 71 it was PIMCO's worst ever year and it's a reason why the Fed and again highly topical is very anxious not to deliver surprises yeah so what do you 
um, when you think about the the banks and and other companies that that you cover, um, you, you you kind of see you see in your mind that analogy, right? Nineteen ninety four. You're seeing it now. Okay, we have inflation. The hikes are accelerating. How do you go about understanding which of like who who really understands that or is positioned for it? How, what do you what do you look for in in a bank or a management team or understanding if, if you put on your investor hat, um, you know, it strikes me a lot of times that a bank is kind of a black black box a little bit, right? You don't really know what's going on there in, in their in their credit underwriting, what really is, you know, the, the risk management. And I think Buffett talked about culture being really important, going back to, to Wells Fargo. So how do you how do you think about that? Kind of you have a little bit of an idea of what's what's coming, but how does that translate into taking a view on on on, on companies or, you know, without kind of making a recommendation, but kind of understand like who, who might be getting this right or who might be getting, uh, who, who, how could people get caught off guard? I'm, I'm curious, like, is that, is that possible as an investor in, in banks or how do you think about picking? It, so you're right, it is a black box. Um, coming back to one of the topics we were discussing before, the kind of heuristics. So the, the macro heuristic might be that the next crisis isn't going to, it is is it isn't going to be uh, the same as the, uh, uh, as the as the previous crisis. That the micro heuristic is is growth. You know, in other segments and in other sectors, investors love mm. growth. In tech, in particular, growth. Um, I, I I'm not a fan of growth. <laughs> I think in, I think any finance analyst is rightly wary of growth. Growth can be very yeah. very cheaply manufactured very you're giving away money um, and what's more important than the volume of that is the pricing of that and you don't have visibility on the pricing of that until further down the line it's a point you're right Buffett has made not just in terms of banking but also in terms of insurance um, so so at any point in time it's a black box given multiple periods of time you can you can follow the money flow and get a sense of um, how the business is performing and I guess you can reconcile that with a look to the past so the track record of the institution but coupled with because frequently kind of you know Wells Fargo is a great example of that frequently competition sets in a kind of a complacency sets in Wells Fargo in 2016, actually, even JP Morgan in 2012, the so-called London Whale, actually another example of market risk, where they took on uh, a lot of uh, market risk um, that mm -hmm. wasn't properly um, designed and modeled and risk managed, maybe stemmed from complacency. Um, so a track record. Uh, and then finally, I guess, you know, Jamie Dimon of JP Morgan talks about the fortress balance sheet because ultimately right. it's a black box, sure, but there's less risk if the black box is not levered than if it is levered. So the fortress balance sheet, the minimization of leverage is another thing that one can look towards. And the regulators, certainly since the financial crisis, have been very helpful in that regard. So... If I'm piecing this together, right, um, 
on the one hand, right? So on on a micro on a micro level, growth is sort of a, a two sided sword, or, or, or can or can be very tricky in, in financials. At the same time, if I put on a fintech investor hat, well, I do want growth because I ultimately want a business that that scales enough to be sustainable that you know that I can take public and so forth. So how do you and, and it won't have a track record of underwriting across multiple cycles. So I can't really go to history. So how do you when you talk to, to people and you said you, you invest in, in, in fintech occasionally yourself, like how do you how do you think about fintech then does this make sort of lending companies in, in fintech kind of really hard to invest in or like how how do you think about this dynamic of well you do need growth and you're competing with everybody else for that expensive growth right in terms of customer acquisition cost and and at the same time your investors sort of demand it because how else are they going to um, um, get venture type returns how do you think about this this conundrum well there is a story in fintech that that linked to underbanked or unbanked segments of the population. That by reducing the cost of origination through using technology, that more of the population will be available as a potential customer base for some lending products. So technology directly Another way to think about it is in terms of total addressable market, that make that technology increases that. And there's a great example in Brazil with Nubank, which was able to win a large share of the previously unbanked segment of the Brazilian population. So that's 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 an interesting story. What this cycle is gonna be very interesting, if if we do see a credit cycle. Actually, right now. There are very few signs of a credit cycle. Most okay. early stage indicators of consumer delinquency are, are still looking quite buoyant. There are very few signs right now, obviously that could change, of a consumer credit cycle. Um, but if we get one, it'll be very interesting because it will be a test. And you know, it's kind of, and, the, and it, will validate, it, will validate some, it will validate some of these models because another model that has emerged less around unbanked and maybe more about underbanked, is that previously banks would say no, but there are various kind of arbitrage opportunities um, where credit is being refused, but where if it's priced appropriately, not at kind of subprime levels necessarily, but th there is a price um, and some of these fintech models are able to cherry pick and actually identify that price and take on that consumer. So many of them have come out you know, in their IPO prospectuses and spoke about their acceptance rate being higher than the typical bank acceptance rate. So they, would, they were doing more lending than like for like a bank would do. Now, you know, there's two reasons right. why that might be the case. It might be, bad, it might be bad lending or it might be they genuinely have tapped into um, a group of customers that previously were falling between the cracks. Um, and this cycle will show, this cycle will will expose that for better or for worse. Yeah, that's, that's, that's going to be interesting. I actually wanted to ask you about, I mean, it's interesting that you already talked about the, the credit cycle because my, 
one of the things that I wasn't sure at, but I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if I'm missing a model here. I saw that, uh, you know, Buffett, for example, bought more uh, Citigroup stock. And and I kind of went back and, and oh, there was this um, this podcast with uh, Professor uh, Demodaran. Um, uh, he wasn't invest like the best. And, and he talked about how in high inflation countries, um, eventually a lot of the large corporates turn into uh, turn into financial companies and he said something like they all start a bank on the side because they figure out it's it's easier to um, to lend out money than you know do kind of industrial stuff and and, I'm, and I was kind of trying to connect whether if we're entering a time of just persistently higher inflation which whether or not that's going to be the case is sort of its own but if that was the case right is is that going to be, Ultimately, our, our financials and, and banks specifically maybe going to be a, a better place to be, right? Rates might be higher, and and sort of the last decade, which was a challenge. Um, in, on the other hand, if you have a credit cycle, right, especially after a long period of, of no credit cycle, right, that would be a very banks would be a very very treacherous place to be. So I'm I'm, I'm curious how you think about um, how important is having a view on inflation, and do you think? Um, like I'm, I'm just curious. Is that a model? Like, have you have you seen that before? Is or it's interesting. Yeah, I, a good I, place I, to be. In I, yeah, it's, it's I, as a whether it's linked to inflation or not. There is broadly a tendency for companies. You know, I often think. I often actually in my opening post to net interest, I talk about various reasons why financials are interesting. One of them is that, unbeknownst to analysts in other sectors many companies are financials in disguise, that they have within them a financial company. You know, there's a great, you know, the great famous Enron conference call back in 2001, I think, one of the quarterly calls where uh, Jeff Skilling calls the analyst an asshole for asking, he says, you know, you're the only financial institution that doesn't publish its balance sheet. And, um, you know, the, 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 foc the focal point of that in the market is, you know, oh, wow, Jeff, Jeff Skilling called the analyst an asshole. To me, it's, hang on a sec, this is a massive expose. No one actually realized that Enron was a financial company. Um, right. And there are, there are many of them. There are timeshare companies in the US that generate sales off the back of credit. Auto companies, very famously, have financing arms. Right. Um, you know, interestingly, you trace back the history of the credit card. It was the department stores. It was Sears, um, which which had multiple financial interests. Actually, not just credit cards, um, some brokerage uh, financial interests as well. And you know, so just across the world, that's that is the case. I don't know if it's the case more so in high inflation countries or not. Right now, very topically, Apple has announced. The speculation was always that they would launch more financial products, but the consensus was they would do it with a banking partner. They announced no, that Apple Financing LLC was going to be a wholly owned subsidiary and that they would retain pay later receivables on their own balance sheet. Hmm. What do you make of that? I mean, do you, do you think that's ultimately... I mean, are industrial? I mean, Apple's a tech company, not industrial. But but are do you think that there's a good track record of of you know a non-financial company and and their culture being being 
good at that kind of business, managing it well? Or how, how, how do you think about that? Kind yeah, of it's a really good question. The answer is no. It's, but it's a function of size. I mean, it, clearly, these, in Apple's case, these are six-week um, duration receivables. Um, it's going to be very small relative to the size of Apple for a long time to come. Um, but the track record is no. Uh, GE is a great example. Um, right. uh, GE Capital um, kind of subsumed GE, uh, and it didn't it didn't end well. Uh, and, and and historically, um, just the mindset largely linked to growth. Actually, interestingly, GE Capital's is a, I can't remember its name. I'm sure you've referenced it in your pieces. There was a great book recently uh, about GE history of GE right I, I think that well there's actually two um, I'm, I'm blanking on the name now so what I wrote about was um, the um, lessons from the Titans which had a couple of chapters on the rise and fall on GE then there's uh, and actually there's there's a fresh book on GE which I haven't read yet but I actually thought that GE was an interesting case study because yes there were parts of GE capital that ultimately kind of became Toxic. However, so I, I spent a few years in kind of specialty finance and, you know, um, non-bank lending and leasing companies. And my perception was always that GE Capital had a, a very good reputation or at least certain teams or parts of the business, right? Like they did a lot of um, um, kind of not, not high yield, but like private credit type lending. They did equipment finance. They had a a healthcare finance, like they had a lot of individual business units that I think as that was dismantled, people were very eager to snap up. So I always thought that, yeah, in the broader arc of GE, clearly financial engineering, um, they're, they're, like things went off the rails. At the same time, I'm not so sure that it was, you know, all bad. Like I, I, I thought people had, had a lot of respect for, and, and I think Aries, for example, had a big JV with, with uh, GE for a long time. And obviously that came and went, but like, and, and it struck me that culture was pretty important there. Like people, like the culture within lending or investment businesses. Um, I, I don't know if you, I don't yeah, know if no, you I, touched right, on that. You're right. It's very easy with hindsight. Well, it's, it's not just hindsight. It's GE. It didn't, it didn't crash. It, it had, it was around for a long time. Um, so just by focusing on the downfall, maybe belies the value it created over the decades that it was a valuable part of GE. But what brought it down was the pursuit of growth, that they had to, they got to such a scale that they had to originate more and more assets across multiple different asset classes. And that GE Capital partly, you know, you mentioned financial engineering, was the, the yardstick for success at GE parent company was EPS growth. And GE Capital was a huge contributor towards that. And to what I was saying earlier, growth at a financial services company is not the way to track it. So that's, that's an issue. Um, I mean, the model hasn't gone away. It's gone into private hands. Apollo is trying to recreate GE Capital in its own yeah. terms, in its own words. Well, actually, I, there's, there's a couple of things I want to come back to, but let's, let's talk about that because you've written about the 
or call it the alternative asset managers, right? They've they've outgrown their their private equity roots to some extent. Like when TPG came public, you wrote a piece about that. You've written about um, Apollo and and all of them. It it struck me how much that business has changed from what used to be sort of small teams incentivized by carry and trying to kind of generate the highest returns on on the small capital pools that they invested you know, several decades ago to these publicly traded behemoths where the incentive clearly is um, to grow and, and, and shareholders want that. And, and I think, how do you think about those businesses, those business models, how much has changed? Like what's your, what's your take on that corner of the market? Yeah, so they have changed. They've become, they filled a vacuum that was left when investment banks, you, you in one of your pieces quoted Michael Lewis, I think, who said you could never write liars poker today um and i think the reason he gave is that kind of trading floors just aren't as colorful anymore um right actually there's another reason which is they're not as powerful anymore actually either Mm -hmm. and i would think people like reading stories about well maybe not i was going to say they like reading stories about power but certainly some kind of power dynamic uh within within a story the they're not really private equity firms anymore. Private equity is a small part of what they do, but the alternative managers, they now filled that vacuum, um, be it as a, as a, a bit in the sense that they operate outside of the regulated financial system. Um, and they do a lot of private credit um, and they do a lot of the activities that investment banks historically used to do. Right. And, and I'm just wondering, is that, how would I think about that as an, as an investor? Because to me, the investment management business is, I think, a really good business. It's, it scales a lot, and especially for private funds, right? Like, it's very sticky capital, and there were a lot of secular tailwinds of, of um, endowments and pensions allocating more and more to private assets. So, so I think they, that was a very, there was a very favorable environment for that. Um, but to your point, like the incentive is, is to grow. Now you're branching out into all of these other things. And I don't know if that, like, is it a good idea to replicate an investment bank? I'm not sure if that's per se a good business. Like, how, how do you think about that? Um, is that diversification? Does it, does it make sense? Is there like a limit to, to growth you can pursue as, a, as an alternative manager? It's not. So maybe I should climb down a little bit. It's not, they're not replicating the balance sheet element of that business model. So there are other kind of shadow institutions which have taken on some of the functions of investment banks like wholesale market makers, um, like exchanges um, and exchange groups, uh, like clearing houses. But certainly in terms of the provision of private credit, um, mm. the the rather than rather than bank intermediated or credit that sits on ultimately on banks balance sheets they've stepped in to do that Apollo tells a story that there is demand for alternatives to traditional fixed income and that given the timelines that pension funds work under they are prepared to take more liquidity risk uh, and that's something that they're able to generate. 
Uh, hence their yeah. strategy to recreate GE Capital, buying up those origination engines that are able to provide that, that they can push through their investment management platform to both themselves, because they actually have their own balance sheet, a retirement services right, business, right. but also to third party asset owners. So I think you mentioned earlier that sort of EPS growth and like is not is not a, was not a good yardstick for for um, G and can be manipulated. When you think about the the management teams that that you track and the companies that you track, what what are good yardsticks? Like what are you looking for when you listen to a CEO and they lay out their strategy and how they how they track? Like what kind of cues are you looking for? What do you think are good ways to um, track performance like what what have, what have been your lessons about about that well kind of sustainable growth so um, you, you're looking you, you're looking for like all sectors you're looking for ultimately a return on invested capital that exceeds a certain hurdle rate um, which allied to that reflects a willingness to return capital to shareholders if that cannot be achieved. Uh, in the past, banks have suffered from this kind of appetite to be bigger. Um, right. uh, hence, they've deployed capital and been very, very sensitive to competitive forces. Competitions. Competition is really damaging in financial services marketplace it's one of the reasons actually regulators don't promote regulators don't promote it financial regulators don't unlike antitrust policymakers financial regulators don't promote competition um, you know some of the most successful banking systems globally I'm kind of when I say successful I guess what I mean is from a regulator's perspective, I have not suffered a financial crisis, have been some of the most concentrated banking systems. So Canada is a very good example. Right. Um, you know, in Ireland today, there are only two banks, kind of a response to the financial crisis, specific crisis around Irish banking, which hit Ireland very, very hard, um, is that now there are only two banks. And whenever antitrust kind of comes up against bank stability you know there was an example in the UK when and actually in the US when Wells Fargo wanted to buy uh, Wachovia um, and JP Morgan wanted to buy Washington Mutual um, similarly in the UK when these big bank bank mergers emerge as an opportunity in a time of crisis antitrust regulators are told to kind of pipe down um, and financial regulators just see it through so comp competition isn't isn't necessarily from a financial stability perspective uh, a good thing and when looking at kind of risk at banks and in financial services you kind of are looking for banks that aren't trying to over compete because um, that then bad, bad things bad things happen do, do you think so some this is really interesting because 
one of the to, to me right capital there's some degree of where it's just a commodity and and it's if it's very easy to set up a competing bank rather than you have two branches like suddenly you're competing and, and business is bad for everyone now what you just outlined i'd say okay so maybe you look into a you look at a country after a financial crisis and maybe there's been a lot of consolidation among those banks maybe that makes it a very in- interesting place to to invest at the same time even if there's few banks by numbers they can still sort of compete aggressively on on terms do you do you, do you think and i think that places like australia or maybe canada have historically not just been concentrated but also good, been good places for shareholders of, of those banks is that is that something you think is is inherently attractive if one wanted to invest in banks you look for kind of a stable and concentrated place or or d- does it more depend on the quality of the individual bank? Is that yeah. like is this a is this a framework that works or? Yeah, I guess all investors are different, and it depends what you're looking for. We're talking about long periods right. of time here. These cycles take many many yeah. years to play out. You know, if you're looking for if you're looking for a, a dividend yield um, and the comfort to sleep at night, let's say, then banks in some of those markets could be quite attractive to you. But if you're looking, but you're, but if, but if, if you know, if you have a fear of missing out, then they're likely not, and you know, and and some of the, you know, the other extreme newly IPO'd businesses, you know, like a firm, or, or, um, you know, Robinhood, it's not not a bank, but obviously they they offer a different proposition. So yeah, yeah. I mean, right. all, all, all investors are different, and within finance, one of the reasons why I think finance sector is so attractive is that you have all the characteristics in there. You know, there's, there's growth, there is value, there is um, there's momentum. All of the kind of factors that apply elsewhere apply within financial services. So. Before writing, and right, you, you spend time as a partner at a kind of fin- focused on on financials at a hedge fund. So I'm I'm curious um, where you think if if you're a, if you're a professional investor and you're investing in financials, you can kind of pick as you said different. You can go into growth, value, momentum, different different subsectors. Where does a professional add? I want to say add the most value, or like what are sort of the things that are not obvious to the outsider that a professional will pick up on or where are they going to spend their time to to, to find out like a differentiated insight like if, if you put back on the, the the hedge fund lens and you have your pick in financials like where do you go looking for for opportunity and and, and what is interesting to a professional that you know a, i don't know a retail investor or somebody who's not versed in the space or generalist wouldn't even come to think of like how do you how do you generate differentiated, like a variant perception in, in, in the space? Um, it helps that it's a sector that is broadly disliked elsewhere or misunderstood. It's not a complex sector and actually something we haven't talked about yet, but is worth mentioning is that complexity is a feature to run away from, that complexity sure. can be laid into financial products to generate margin, but it's not, and it's been a trick that financial companies have employed for many, many years. They kind of utilize, maybe because it's a commodity, they kind of, they complexify it, and they complexify products 
and historically looking at some kind of exotic option structured derivatives products which are sold to retail there's a complexity in there which generates in and of itself a high margin um, because it's a commodity but also there's no intellectual property really in this industry that there are patents actually Bank of America applies and receives hundreds of patents a year but very difficult to um, to claim intellectual property on a financial product so there's no intellectual property as you say there is a commodity component really to it um, and, 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 and therefore banks often layer in complexity you run away from that um, so but some people run away too far and don't get involved in the sector. Now, for the past 10 years, actually, that's been a right call, avoiding not financials broadly, because financial technology has done very well and exchanges have done very well and asset managers have done very well, but banks haven't. It's been it's paid investors not to have looked at banks over the past 10 years. But um, but so I look at, so so firstly, having that mindset, helps. Um, secondly, I think maybe compared with other sectors, it's a very balance sheet oriented style of analysis. Um, you know, it kind of reflects what I was saying before about not really looking at earnings per share, look first and foremost at the balance sheet. So and understand, so read the balance sheet. And because of that, it helps to be quite close to credit markets. So if there is a equity sector, which is close, so closest to credit markets, it, it is it is financials um, because they're reliant on credit markets. Well, there's two reasons. One is through funding. But secondly, as a proxy, what goes on in credit markets is the same business model that banks are employing, i.e. underwriting credit. Yeah. Um, so that's all important. And then one thing, and it's not just particular to uh, financials, but I've always been, when I was uh, an investor, uh, a professional investor at the fund, we were global. We had a global mandate. And I think that's mm -hmm. hugely powerful to be able to see patterns across borders, particularly in, it's quite interesting, banks and financials are quite local because they are regulated on a local basis. And the products themselves culturally tend to be quite local like you know a mortgage in you've probably learned that a mortgage in US is nothing like a mortgage in Germany and yeah, yeah. and a mortgage they're just every country has for what is fundamentally should be a similar product is very very different so the products are actually quite different but something we were talking about earlier about kind of market cycles and human behavior all being the same uh, and competitive dynamics being the same the seeing patterns across countries is hugely powerful uh, and that's been uh, a kind of a trick that we employed when we were managing money in the financial sector are there any patterns you're you're watching right now that people should pay attention to that maybe they're underestimating if they're just operating in the US or the UK or in kind of a developed market where they're not um, not apparent yet. Is there any 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 patterns that are coming? Well, I look at China. I look at China a lot. So, um, one answer to that would be, from a regulatory perspective, 
Look at China. You know, we were talking earlier about uh, Apple and some of these non-financial companies that might be moving into finance. Um, actually, the flip side is crypto looks like it's retrenching. So crypto had been a competitive threat to traditional financial services. That now looks like it's retrenching. Um, if that hadn't have been the case, regulators would have come in regardless. Regulators at some stage, and the lesson from China with Alipay, Ant, is that when non-banks, non-financials get to a certain size, then regulators will come in. So another kind of tool in the financial analyst summary is to stay close, to watch what regulators are doing. Hugely, hugely important. Um, and China was kind of at the cutting edge of that. So looking at what was, China was kind of um, several years ahead of what was happening in the rest of the world. Not to say the rest of the world would have got there because, because of path dependence, the rest of the world was coming from a different history, historical starting point. But from a regulatory perspective, that was interesting. And then, you know, I mean, right now, I mean, I'm looking at Turkey quite a lot. If you want to look at, you know, if you want to look at inflation, you can go back to the 1970s. We can look at Turkey right now. And that's kind of slightly unconventional monetary policy response to what's going on right there, to what's going on there right now. But you've got a financial system which actually other European banks invested in, allocated capital to historically. I haven't written about it yet, um, but yeah. it's, it's worth looking at. That's coming down the path. What about payments? I, I think you've written about the... Um, um, Brazil and kind of the the efforts to create sort of top down new new payments rails and maybe faster and much cheaper payments rails. Which to me, it seems like you go to any merchant here, there is there is a fairly significant tax that um, or rent that payments companies kind of. Ext I'm going to say extract from the economy, but like I'm just going to say like they're, they're well compensated. It seems to me for for the service they're providing, and I'm always wondering like is that a profit pool that ultimately. You know, it doesn't have to exist in that way. And like, are there other countries that create a precedent for how that could be solved very differently? Is that on your mind? Yeah, exactly right. It's very interesting the way different countries are. It's a really good example. Different countries are tackling payments um, very differently and actually for different reasons. You know, going back a number of years, like going back 20 odd years, international development efforts were geared around microcredit. There was an idea that to improve economic development in developing countries, an injection of credit supply could be very powerful. And that gave way to an understanding that actually payments is potentially even more valuable. That introducing a way of doing payments, non-cash, more secure, way of doing payments in countries like Kenya with M-Pesa and then India with UPI and you were talking about PICS in Brazil that these are ways to bring more people into the economy to use kind of financialization for good through through payments mm. not through credit but through payments um, and Kenya is actually a really good success story there the way to do that though in some countries is for governments to recognize that payments are a utility and infrastructure 
and that to varying degrees they either come in like they have done in China and do it on a national basis or they work with the private sector. So in India they're working with the private sector, also in Brazil but less so. It's kind of a spectrum between pure state oriented utility management and then pure private sector, which is the case in the US. Um, and then things in between. Um, and, and the story's not over there yet. So increasingly, it'll be interesting to see if the retrenchment of crypto has an impact on the momentum to which countries were talking about introducing central bank digital currencies. Right. Countries, you know, back in 2019, Facebook said it was going to introduce its own stable coin. And it, it, it rollicked um, central banks globally. They, it really um, motivated them and a very rapid consensus was formed, kind of G7 communicate at the end of 2019, just really slapping this thing right down. In the end, it's been abandoned. Um, but in the meantime, it created motivation for central banks to introduce their own stablecoin as a means to another means to uh, affect payments, cheap payments. Um, so do, do, is that when you think about kind of the potentially most disruptive or, or the, the developments that could most append financials as a whole of the sector, um, is, is that where you have your eyes on? Is there anything else like where you think that this could really change a lot of businesses? A lot of yeah, business no, I models? do. So you're right. I do have my eye on payments. Historically, payments were almost a byproduct of banking. Banking was deposit taking fundamentally. And then using banking was fundamentally deposit taking and payments because the liquidity sat at the bank, banks offered payments mechanisms. Um, but increasingly, but were ancillary to deposit taking. Increasingly, we're seeing that turned on its head and that payments is becoming kind of the axe of the relationship as well because of the data it throws off and the frequency. Right. Um, you know, another reason why fintech has been hot. Well, another reason why fintech has kind of worked in trading. Another reason why fin you know, tech has tech works where there's a frequency of engagement. I suppose. You know, the reason why. I'm not. I'm not an expert in Meta or Facebook, but you know, clearly the engagement that its consumers have, that kind of attention, that ability to extract attention, has been hugely important for those business models. And financials, right. in a way, I mean, it's one of the reasons why I'm kind of a bit cautious on business models like uh, Robinhood, is that actually to do finance well, you, you don't, that, that engagement is a negative. You know, you don't want your customer, I mean, they do, they're incentivized, but objectively, an investor shouldn't be looking at their app two hours a day on their portfolio. Right. <laughs> uh, and yet they're incentivized to, to create that. So there's a massive misalignment here between kind of good investment practice and what these companies are aligned to do. Um, and, you know, same with, same with, so it's not quite the same. It's not as invidious in insurance, but the problem InsureTech has, a lot of insurance companies went public in 2021 and 2020. 
uh, and they've performed very, very badly, is because it's a product customers only buy once a year. So the, yeah. the inverse happens. There's no way really to increase, to engage, to create engagement and there's no, nothing happens after that. Um, payments is the, payments is the sweet spot. Payments is, you know, it's far, it, you know, it is going to be checked. There is a frequency of use and that's not in conflict with good practice from the consumer's perspective. So, um, and as a result of that, the company offering payments is able to pick up data and that's hugely powerful when it then comes to credit underwriting. Obviously, this is a model that went into hyperdrive in China, but for all of those reasons, yeah, payments, payments becoming the, you know, and another, um, he, so Bern Hobart writes a great newsletter, the diff, um, he talks about a spectrum yeah. between commerce and payments and credit. I mean, payments and credit have historically been kept separate, but really it's the same thing on the basis that it doesn't settle. You know, cash settles immediately. If I was to hand over, you know, a dollar bill to you, that would settle immediately. Most electronic payments do not settle immediately, and therefore there is yeah. some credit risk. And then you can go in out that process yeah, and that yeah, can go out as far as you like. So there's a so from commerce through payments to credit, it's a spectrum. And yeah, um, yeah. I think companies historically, banks at least, they treated them as discrete businesses, but now it's being viewed mm. as the spectrum that it is. Interesting. Although is there anybody although I should say in the US, other interesting regulatory point, in the US it's illegal commerce, there's a separation between commerce and banking. There's a legal separation between commerce and banking. It is not allowed for a, um, uh, you would have to be a bank holding company and regulated as a bank holding company if you owned more than a certain share of a bank. Uh, but interestingly, Warren Buffett, very interesting, you know, for watchers of Berkshire, Buffett history, back in the 1960s, Buffett, yeah, you wrote yes. about that. Yes, I love that. Exactly. Piece. That was back fantastic. in the 1960s. Buffett bought a piece of a bank. He talks about him and Charlie. Can't remember the exact phraseology he used, but he talked about shoe leather on the streets of Chicago, Illinois more broadly, looking for banks to buy. Um, and they bought they bought a bank. They bought a stake in a bank. Um, pretty much the same time they bought a stake in their first insurance company. Clearly, they then rolled up the insurance company. Um, and now we all know the story of Float and we all know how important insurance is to Berkshire. It was forced to sell its stake in the, uh, in the bank because otherwise Berkshire would have become a bank holding company, which would have been very damaging from a regulatory perspective. Um, and the origins of that law are in a separation of commerce and banking. Yeah, it's interesting to think I guess with within the regulatory framework, there isn't that much creativity um, you can apply. But it's interesting to think of what would have, what would Buffett's career had been if he hadn't used insurance as the vehicle, but instead, by accident of history, now he's at top of a bank. Is there anything creative he can do? And I think there are some investors, uh, maybe Andy Beal or others, who at times have used sort of banks as a vehicle. But you're, I guess, pretty restrained in terms of what you can do creatively. So maybe the Apollo model is the the unregulated quasi or shadow bank model is is, is maybe the better way to to play. Yeah. Um, 
I'm, I'm curious just to to close it off if you um who do you follow is is there anybody whether that's ceos or investors in the space who you think can kind of see around corners i mean jamie diamond is somebody that that people watch but other other people whose words you parse closely in terms of understanding you know where where, where your space is going and Jamie Dimon is very good. He's been around for a long time. Goldman, the business model has changed. It's become more retail-oriented. Um, but historically, Goldman management are worth listening to and watching. Blackstone as well. You know, whether it's Schwartzman or going down John Gray at Blackstone. Very, very uh-huh. insightful. Yeah. And Mark Rowan at Apollo has a great understanding of financial services business has pivoted Apollo into one and is very thoughtful on that subject and then there are many investors as well there are many investors particularly those with kind of longevity who were around maybe during the financial crisis they see I mean what's interesting about finance actually is it shouldn't we talked about earlier about it being a black box but there are yeah so here's an interesting point. I'm halfway through Michael Lewis's book, Pandemic, uh, uh, um, Premonition, Premonition about the pandemic. Have you, I don't know if you've read it or yeah. No, I've not read that. Yet. Actually, I wasn't going to because I, my view was any book written about the pandemic was too soon. Um, but I saw him being interviewed and it was pretty compelling. And I picked up the book and actually halfway through it, he hasn't even mentioned COVID-19 yet. But he has this really interesting point about, he calls it L6. He says, if you want to understand, L6 stands for level six in an organization. He says, if you understand, want to understand anything, then, mm-hmm. you, then uh, about anything, then, and he said it was true in finance, actually, in particular, you go six levels down in an organization. And it's at that level you'll find the person who understands what it is you're looking at. And that's really interesting. When it comes to finance, that's, that's, that's really interesting. So rather than, I mean, Jamie Dimon, Jamie Dimon is particularly good, actually, because unusually for a CEO, I don't know this for a fact, but I suspect he talks to the guy at level six. If he wants to know the answer to something, he will go down until he finds that guy. Most CEOs in financial organizations, and I'm going way back to when I was like a junior finance analyst. Um, you know, I remember, I remember Sosté General, the CEO speaking at a, a presentation and you know so famously the French banks are very big in derivatives businesses and he mm-hmm. brazenly said he didn't really understand what a derivative was but it didn't matter because he employed people who did um, and so I, I think a lot of most CEOs don't necessarily know what's going on but so that that's what's interesting about Jamie Dimon but you as an outside you as an investor you can go down you know um, six levels yeah. deep and um, you know the great thing about being a counterparty to some of these banks is that you w- might know someone or be able to. You know, it's not insider information. You're not. It, 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 it's, it's not. But it's somebody with an insight into what's happening in some particular market segment, which has implications for finance more more broadly. Um, this is actually really interesting, right? Because my question sort of implied that you should look to the person at the top for understanding the space when actually what you you're making a really good point these are really complex organizations and the person at the top may actually not really 
be able to i mean this is like the margin call scene right where he's like let's talk to the rocket scientist the the risk manager who's very, very close to the actual exposure and the ceo gets called in overnight and has basically you know kind of broadly understands what's going on but is is very removed from um, from that desk and that exposure and understanding the the minutia that's that's actually a really interesting point i um to, to, yeah I love it, Mark. Uh, thank you so much for for sharing all of this. I, I'm obviously I'm going to link to to some of your pieces that that we referenced. I um, and uh, you know very much in, enjoyed just enjoyed this. Yeah, no, it's great. No, really good talking to you.